We're going to start again with uh, John chapter 2. So thankful everyone's here today. I noticed that there are some that aren't in our midst and we want to pray for them, uh, whatever situation they have. But let's go on to John chapter 2. As we talked about last week, we know that the marriage of Cana is significant for a number of reasons. Number one, Jesus Christ, that's where he performed his first miracle. In fact, our last verse that we read this morning says this was the beginning of the miracles of Christ. We see also this is where Jesus Christ comes out of relative obscurity. He lives a private life and now he is chosen at this point in history to come forward and start his public ministry. What was so sweet about this is that when he performed this miracle, he didn't do it before kings and princes of the world. He didn't do it before the religious leaders, didn't do it in Jerusalem, in front of the temple, Bethlehem, any of these other places. He did this in an intimate setting among his family and close friends, his family. And so I think that's just sweet and so beautiful. We're going to see some other things in, in these verses that I hope that are instructive to us. And I hope that they um, are able to change our lives because that's what repentance is all about. Uh, we don't just repent once and, and come to the church. Uh, repentance is a daily thing. Repentance means I just want to change. And if we're not changing and if we're not improving, we're stale and we're stagnant and we're going to eventually back away. So we always want to go forward, ever forward, always forward in the faith. Now, Jesus Christ is invited to this marriage. We know that that was important. If we personally want Jesus to come into our lives to change our water into wine, we must want Jesus Christ's presence in our life. We must want to do the commandments of Christ. And this is tough because we have the flesh to deal with. We have three enemies to deal with. What are our three enemies? The world, our flesh, and Satan. And these are always tempting, always leading us down the wrong path. And these are always leading us astray or leading us to the wide and broad way that leadeth to destruction. So it's no coincidence that the way that leadeth unto life is straight and it's tough and we don't want to do some stuff we don't want to read our bibles we don't want to pray we don't want to go to church we don't want to treat each other right we want to gossip we want to back talk we want to do all these other things and not the other but if we want jesus in our life and we want our water turned to wine because we all need it in our lives, right? We either need advice, we need direction, or we need a bona fide miracle. We want the closeness and intimacy of Jesus Christ in our life. So this is one point that we gather from the story. But also, we can't ignore the fact that this is a wedding. And Jesus chooses a wedding in order to... Uh, perform his miracle and to change his life from private to public. Now this shows us how much honor Jesus Christ is bestowing upon marriage. How sacred it is. It is a common grace that he's given us. He actually ordained marriage for us. And we know that the proper order of marriage is, right? 
The Scripture says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be as one. Right? So what's the order? First you leave, then you cleave, then you weave, and then you conceive. Don't get those out of order. Because God definitely has an order for relationships on this earth and the proper way it's supposed to go. Now, marriage is ordained of God and it is supposed to be authenticated in an open public ceremony because you're proclaiming before all the world that this is your bride. It's confirmed by a ceremony, always has and always will. People who live together are not married. I know that there is a thing I learned in law school called common law marriage. But God recognizes ordained marriages that are commemorated or authenticated by ceremony. Marriage is the highest and noblest and best of all human relationships. It is the best gift God has to give to humanity in general, regardless of whether they are believers or not. <laughs> Why is that? Because any society, brothers and sisters, that honors marriage is a society that does well. Any society, not just any kind of marriage, but a society that honors marriage, a lifelong commitment openly, a covenant kept and met, and between a husband and wife, that is a society that does well. These bonds that we form during the marriage of love and commitment to raise children, that's a society that honors God and honors marriage. Now, if you have a society that recognizes that sort of marriage, you're going to have a society that has a low crime rate. It will be secure. It will be safe. And it will be more moral. On the other hand, any society that does not recognize or honors marriage as a covenant, lifelong commitment between a man and a woman, where children are reared and cared for, that society diminishes. That society will become corrupt. That society will become immoral and their crime rate will go up. Any society that does not honor godly marriage will descend into chaos and judgment. Now, Bible tells us this. The history tells us this. Statistics tell us this. Just so happens the Bible and God tells us this as well. Now, that society, our culture, um, will have wonderful blessings from God. And, of course, no society is perfect because it's made up of imperfect individuals. But we know that that's a sign to be blessed that honors the Lord. So, we have the party, right? We have the feast. What, how, how do we describe marriage amongst the, Jewish couple, amongst the Jewish people? Well, the man that wanted to marry a girl went to the father, and there was a covenant made. It was a binding covenant and promise that he was going to marry this girl. And they became betrothed. It's a betrothal period. Now, they wouldn't actually get married or have the ceremony until a year later. So why did they have to make this covenant 
one year before they actually got married because the husband had to be doing some things. He had to be getting the house ready. He had to build the house or he had to save the money because he had to pay everything for the ceremony and this feast. And as we see, this feast was not cheap. Jesus turned the water into wine. How much wine did Jesus make? He made about 120 gallons. Now this feast or party went on for days. Just look at the water pots for the cleansing. That's what they originally were used for. Now the Jews cleansed everything. And we see that from, I think it's Mark 11, we'll go over that again. But we see that this was something that was done. Now if you got 120 gallons of water, that's a lot of cleansing. So this was a long party, it was very expensive, and the bridegroom had to pay for all of it. So we have the party. Now let's go to the predicament. What's the predicament? We find that in verse 3. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. So they've run out of wine. Now this is a big embarrassment. This is a big embarrassment for the bridegroom because he's been working and saving all year for this and it's his duty to pay for everything. So this is not just a little slight. This is a catastrophe. So what does Mary do? And notice that she's called the mother and after that she's called the woman. Mother and then she's called the woman. Mary, the mother of Jesus, goes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Now my question to you this morning is, why did Mary say this to Jesus in particular? Well, some people I've heard said, well, Mary had been giving this message from the Lord and from the angel that the thing that was in her is a holy thing. And that this is indeed the Messiah. So she had been the mother of Jesus for 30 years and haven't seen any miracles yet. And so some people theorize that she's been waiting and waiting and she thought, well, this is the perfect opportunity. You know, Jesus, I have no wine. Let's, uh, let's see a little miracle here. Let's get this thing rolling. But I don't know if that's really the case. It could be. I don't know. But I think more likely, you know, why didn't she go to Joseph? Her husband. Well, evidently, probably Joseph is not there. Probably Joseph has died. We know that Joseph passed away by the time Jesus Christ went to the crucifixion. Because as you remember, he was uh, hanging on the cross. And even in his last words, one of the seven last words of Jesus Christ, he is concerned about his mother. And he, can, and he, and he says, this is my mother. And then he gives her to who? The, the disciple whom he loves, right? John. And he says, now this is your mother. And woman, this, now he says woman, right? Not mother, because he's cut off the relationship, because he's going to die. And he says, now this is your son. So he gives charge, because if a woman becomes a widow, then, the, then the, her affairs and uh, everything, all the burden that, uh, that would go to raising or continuing to upkeep this woman falls onto the eldest son, who Jesus was. Right? 
So he is giving charge of her over to the Apostle John. So she didn't go to Joseph. She didn't go to the ruler of the feast. She goes directly to Jesus Christ. And she says, they have no wine. So why does she ask Jesus Christ? Well, let me ask you this question. When you have a problem, you have a predicament, um, who do you go to? Well, you want any, you got a problem in business or something like that. Who, who are you going to go to for advice? Isn't it someone that you trust? Someone that you have confidence in? Someone that you know is going to tell you the truth? Is going to be honest with you? So, she didn't go to dad or mom or grandma or grandpa or uncle or anybody else. She goes directly to Jesus Christ. Now, I think that Mary, every time she had a problem, she went to Jesus Christ to ask for advice. And why do I think that? Because Jesus never had a bad idea. He never gave a wrong solution. Never took one step in the wrong direction. Jesus had the solution to every dilemma. Why wouldn't you go to Jesus and ask him and tell him your problem? Now he knew how to make every wrong right. Not only was the most wise, intelligent person in the history of the world or ever would be on the face of the earth, this person was also kind and compassionate and honest, the most honest and kind and compassionate person that's ever lived. Who else would she go to and tell him this problem? And it's a big problem. Uh, they have no one. So she, as a widow, has learned to trust in Jesus Christ's leadership. And she has begun to lean on his advice. And that's, of course, that's what we should be doing as well. Trust in the Lord with all thy might. Lean not unto thine own understanding. I, if you got a problem, I take it to the person who has the best advice, wouldn't you? That's Jesus Christ. So, they have no wine. And what is the response in verse 4? It's Jesus saying to her, not mom or mother. It says, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Not mom, woman. Now sometimes we look cockeyed at this and say, how dis disrespectful. Well, back in biblical times, this was not really disrespectful to call someone woman. It's like the South when you, we call people ma'am. Ma'am, I didn't quite catch that. Ma'am, could you check my groceries out? It's, it's, used in prob it's probably the same thing. But it is significant because Jesus is telling her right now, and, and this is a big change, woman, what have I to do with thee? In other words, Woman, this is none of your business. That's one way to look at this. This is, this is none of your business. Now, as we said in John chapter 19, Christ uses woman as well. Now, why did he say woman on the cross? Because that relationship of mother and son was going to cease. 
So he no longer calls her mother, he calls her woman. Woman, this is your son. John, this is your mother. And it's the same thing in the marriage of Canaan. He says, woman, what have I to do with it? See, he is telling her that the relationship we had no longer exists. Because I have changed from my private life, which I am Mary's son, the eldest son, with these responsibilities, now I am changing that from my private life, I'm now entering my public ministry. And therefore, we no longer have that situation. So using the word woman is showing Mary that she is no longer dealing with her son. She is dealing with the son of God. It's changed. See, Jesus says the same thing basically in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is somewhere. I can't figure out where he is, but it seems like he's inside a building somewhere. And there's people come to Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 12 and says, Listen, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside. Because there's this big crowd he's been teaching them. So what, what is basically mom and brothers and sisters want? They're wanting a backstage pass. Right? You know, you go to uh, a big country concert... Uh, a buddy of mine had an airboat company. He let some famous country star film on his on his airboats, and in return, he didn't get any money. He got backstage passes to his concert. So he was backstage. He had access. He was a VIP, and basically, that's what Mary and the bros were thinking. This is family. Hey, we know this guy. We're on the outside and we can't get in because of the crowd. Send word to Jesus. He'll let mom and brothers and sisters in. So what did Jesus say? He said, sure, come on in. We're family. Now he said, who is my mother? Question mark. And who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hands to his audience. And he said, behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my sister and my brother. Okay, so he's pretty much cementing what the relationship is now, right? He says, I must be about, what did he say when he was 12? I must be about my Father's business. And this is no longer... A familial relationship. Right. He's saying my close relationships, Jesus is telling them and he's telling us, he's telling you. He's saying my close relationships are those that do my will. That's where my intimate close relationships are. Those that invite me and want me at the marriage. So then just says, what, what does else Jesus say to her in verse 4? He says, woman, mine hour is not yet come. Now, what does that phrase mean when Jesus says that? Because he says it over, he repeats it. He repeats it in John chapter 8. He repeats it in John chapter 12. He does it again later in, in, in the gospel of John. He changes it up. Here he says, mine hour is not yet come. 
John chapter 8, mine hour is not yet come. Then he gets over to John chapter 12 and he says, mine hour is come. Then he says, mine hour is come. So what's he talking about? I mean, it plainly tells us that Jesus Christ, his purpose upon this earth was not just to preach the gospel, which was one of his purposes, but his ultimate purpose was to go to the crucifixion and suffer and die for his little children. That was his trajectory. That was the path he was taking. That was the end game. That's his destiny. So at the wedding, he's telling her, Woman, mine hour is not yet come. I've got a path and I've got a schedule that I can keep. And the relationships here have totally changed. It doesn't matter who's in Joseph's family. What matters is who's in Christ's family. And this is what relationships on earth that really matter to us is brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, Jesus said that more than one way. But basically, Jesus says, I am on a divine path. I have a schedule that culminates in my death. And everything I do, woman, relates to my destiny. Keep that in mind. Now, we had the party, right? The party. Now we have the predicament. But Jesus then provides the provision. What does Jesus say? What does Mary say, first of all? She said, she gets this word from Jesus Christ. Woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. She then just looks to the servants and says, whatever he says, do it. And she fades away and exits off the stage. Now is Jesus Christ in his public ministry as the Messiah. And he says, bring the pots over here. These pots all together would hold about 120 gallons of water. And they used this for the purification. I don't have time this morning, but over in Mark chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, we see that the Jews, what do they do? They wash their hands before everything. They wash the cups. They wash the plates. They washed everything. Not necessary for cleanliness, but that was a byproduct, by the way. You know one reason why the Jews were hated then, and they're still hated today? It's because back then, they practiced the law. But, it also had the side benefits of having them have a clean culture. And when all the other cultures and societies and the villages of the Gentiles around were dying from disease because they had poor sanitation, the Jews were relatively disease-free. Now, if everybody is dying except the Jews over there having a great time, guess what's going to take hold of my soul? Jealousy and envy and strife. That's one of the reasons the Jews were so hated and are still hated today. Because of that one factor. Of course, other things as well. But that was a big one. So they didn't necessarily clean their hands and the cups and the plates and everything for cleanliness. And by the way, cleanliness is next to godliness. Not in the Bible. But, <laughs> but they did it for purification in the sight of God that they were to be pure in their lives, including everything around them. Okay? So, there's lots of water. 
There's lots of water for a multi-day party. And what does Jesus tell them to do? Look over in verse 7. It says, Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim. I mean, to the very tippy top. So almost going to be running over the sides. And why did he say, fill them up to the brim? Because he was going to change this water into wine. And they didn't want anybody... And remember, just the servants are looking at this, right? The servants are going to be the witnesses to the miracle. See, the, remember, the host of the feast didn't know, didn't know what was going on. And all the party attenders didn't know what was going on. The servants are going to be the witnesses to the majesty and miraculous events that are wrought by Christ. So the reason he says fill it up to the brim is so that nobody can say later, well, he just poured a little wine on top. Or he, you know, poured in some food coloring of some sort. Maybe just made it red. No. He was going to eliminate that. I wish uh, some of the other miracle workers we see around would uh, take precautions like this. But they don't, and for good reason. Now, so someone wouldn't say, oh, he just added water, water to the top. And because he wanted witnesses to this, the servants, of course, were unbiased witnesses to this miracle. And they knew what really happened. By the way, let's step aside here for a second. If you decided today that you're going to be a winemaker, I mean, you're starting from scratch. Okay, what are you going to do to become a winemaker? Well, first of all, you've probably got California, maybe some other uh, temperature that has good... I think they're making wine around here too, I think. Well, you have to go buy some land. And then you have to go buy some seeds or plants. And then you have to till the soil and prepare it. And then you would have to plant the seeds or plant the plants. Then you have to tend them and make sure they weren't eaten by bugs and guard them against cold or hot, extraordinarily hot weather. And then you have to grow them and tenderly keep after them until they produce fruit. And then you have to pick the fruit and you take the grapes and you'd have to crush them and then you have to strain them and then you have to put them in containers and then you would have to ferment them, correct? For a time. Whoever, who ever knows how long that takes. And then until you could finally make one. Now, what did Jesus do in order to make one? Right? I didn't think he snapped his fingers. He just, he just made it. Now think about this. Now, this kind of wine that he made, what did the ruler of the face say? I mean, he was so shocked by the quality of the wine that he went and said, hey, something's up here. You know, usually you serve the best wine at the beginning until everybody's well drunk. <laughs> and then you serve the bad wine when they don't notice. But you've saved the best for life. Now this must have been really good wine for him to notice how great this wine was at the end. And he goes and he, he, he's so concerned about it, he's going to make inquiries about it. So what kind of wine did Jesus make? Obviously, if he made it, it's going to be like wine from the Garden of Eden. Now what happened in Genesis chapter 3? We see that man sinned, correct? Not only did man become a sinner, something else happened, right? 
Now by the sweat of his face, he's going to eat bread all the, way, all the days of his life. Now the earth's going to produce uh, thistles and uh, weeds. And it says specifically there, I think in Genesis chapter 3 verse 17, that the ground was cursed. Not only was man cursed, the ground was cursed. So you've got to work really hard to make some really good quality wine. And how, I don't care how hard you work, that wine is not going to be the same quality as Garden of Eden wine. So when Jesus made wine, just imagine, he made Garden of Eden wine. This was some kind of wine. And so what did they do? They said, hey, you saved the best for last. What kind of provision? Jesus always gives us the best. If we wait on him, he always gives us the best solution, the best advice, and the best gifts. Every time. So we now we have the party. We had the predicament. Now we have the provision. And what is now the purpose? What is the purpose for all this? Jesus is at the wedding by invitation. Someone had the kindness and the forethought to include Jesus in their wedding. If you are married, the question is, is he in your wedding? Is he in your wedding right now? Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 22, it says there, the threefold cord is not easily broken. What does that mean? It says there you have two cords. You have two people coming together and they cleave and weave, right? If you're going to cleave and weave in the name of the Lord, what's going to happen? A third cord is now wrapped around the two cords. A third cord is not easily broken. You know, this is sort of, you see something new all the time. Remember the scripture that says where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. I mean, you only need, brother, you only need two people to worship the Lord. Right? I mean, when you get down to it, you got a preacher and you got a listener. It says two or three. Why does it say two or three? Because threefold cord cannot be easily broken. Because if you have two people that have met in the name of the Lord, automatically, my friends, you're going to have three people right there, wrapped all together. A threefold cord cannot easily be broken. I think that's beautiful. Now, where two join together in holy love and fellowship, Christ by His Spirit will join them and make a third cord. Now, if you remember, there was two disciples after the crucifixion and the burial, and they're on their road to Emmaus. And what are they doing? They're lamenting and they're talking about their Savior. This is the one we thought that was going to redeem Israel. And as they're there talking about the man they love, what happens? A third guy joins them on the road to Emmaus. My friends, whether two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the presence of them. You just got to have two to make three. But that's biblical math. One plus one in the Bible equals three. Amen. Now, let's talk about something else. 
Let's talk about how much Jesus is in your life. Now, how much Jesus you have sometimes depends on how much of you He has. We're talking about the wedding here. Lots of people don't have much of Jesus because Jesus doesn't have much of them. You've been bought with a price. Jesus ought to be everywhere in your life. And Jesus is not really a part of you unless you have Him in every part of your life. If you're just visiting Him on Sunday, you're just not having a lot of Jesus in your life. And you're wondering why there's no big changes in my life. Why are things not different? Why does it seem the same thing happens to me over and over and over? It's because you're not doing anything different. And you're not respecting the rules that God has set down for us to follow in this life in order to have a happy life. And they're simple. He says they're not burdensome. Come ye that are a heavy burden. Come unto me. I will take, give you my burden, which is light. That's the light burden that he has. You remember Samson and over in Judges chapter 14? Samson uh, left Jesus out of his wedding. That's the problem he had. In Judges chapter 14, Samson is going down to Timnath. Timnath is a Philistine city. And as he go in there, he sees a woman. And he says, I want to marry that woman. What's he looking at? Well, he hasn't even talked to her. He doesn't know her character. He's, he's looking at a carcass, not the character, right? Uh, that's what I heard when I was a teenager. Better, you better appreciate the character more than the carcass. So that's all he was looking at. And he tells his father, go get there. And he leaves God and he leaves Jesus Christ out of his wedding. Why? Because the, the rule that God has set down for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, he says, Be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Right. Marriage, my friends, is not a mission field. Right. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That means that if you're in a sort of relationship and you hear the wedding bells faintly down the road, if this person is not a believer in your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, then the Bible says, make your presence known by His absence. Saturate the place with your absence. Now, if you're uh, in a relationship, and that certainly can change. I've seen that as well. I've seen it up close, where there's unbelievers, but by way before marriage time, that person had become a believer. And so therefore, it was a great thing. But Samson knew what was right and didn't do what was right. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so we need to marry disciples. Samson left God out of his wedding, and that wedding was short-lived, wasn't it? Probably about seven days. Now, what was Samson? He had chosen to be a Nazarite. Now, don't confuse that from a Nazarene. Jesus Christ was from Nazareth, so he was a Nazarene. And I, think, I still think it's the same root word, which means consecrated or set apart. Now, Jesus Christ was from Nazarene, and he was set apart, wasn't he? He was consecrated. But if you wanted to be a Nazarite, 
we find that over in Numbers chapter 6, and this is a special vow men or women could take in the Jewish nation that they wanted to be more consecrated, more set apart. They wanted to be a super Christian, in other words. And there were three rules that they have. You all know those rules. Number one, they couldn't drink wine, tin grapes, or the husk, or anything about that. Number two, they couldn't cut their hair. And number three, they couldn't touch dead things. Not just humans, but they couldn't touch dead bodies of any type. Now Samson, what happens after Timnath? He's confronted by a lion. Samson is our superhero in the Bible. The Spirit of the Lord came him, and that, that lion thought he had easy prey. Well, the Spirit of the Lord came over Samson. He took that lion and pulled him apart like a little baby goat. You could pull something like that apart. He just ripped that lion apart. He was a, he was a dead animal, a carcass. He left, he came back. And what happened to the carcass? Well, a bee had moved in. Right? Right, Sister Danielle? Where'd she go? There she is. Bees had moved in to the lion. And you remember the riddle Samson had about that. And we know that that is a picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the lion of Judah, and he is just full of sweetness, right? But it also has an application to what Samson was doing at that time. See, he wasn't allowed to touch a dead thing. He was a Nazareth. But what did he do? He broke his Nazarite vow. He went back there and grabbed the honey out of there, ate some and said, boy, this is the best honey ever. Then took some home to his dad and said, I have some of this honey. It was just wonderful. So he had broken his vow by going into a dead thing. And what had Samson done to his life? He had gone to a dead thing because he wanted some honey. Now that's what some of us has done at different parts of the week. Maybe even on Saturday nights. We go to dead places because that's where the honey is. Hmm? Oh, Brother Chris, you're getting too personal. Yes, I am. <laughs> what did the old preacher say? The old preacher, what did he say about Samson? He said, Samson wasn't stung by the bee. He was stung by the honey. Amen? Now, my question, next question to you is this. What are you as a group of people? We sung about it this morning. Number 226. What are we? We are the bride of Christ. Now, what are some of us naturally? Some of us here are naturally husbands. But in order to be a good husband, we must first learn to be a good bride. The best husbands are those that learn first how to be a good wife. Does that sound kind of weird? <laughs> sort of. But it's true. Because what are we? All we are. Children, husbands, wife, man, woman, children, whoever you are. If you're a child of God, you are the bride of Christ. In order to make a great husband, we must first need to know how to be a good wife. And that way, brothers and sisters, in Ephesians chapter 5, we can then submit one to another. Now, we need Jesus to be 
in all things. We've learned that from this first scripture as well. We need Him to be in our lives. We need to be Him to be in our marriages. We need Him to be in us as individuals. We want advice. We want direction. We want that miracle. We want that wine. We want our water in our lives turned to wine. I need something radically different in my life. And not only do we get something different with Jesus Christ, we get the best. Because we have invited Him right there to the way. And we want to be in His presence. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is seeking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. He gave us His Son. He gave us His Son so that we can learn that we're supposed to leave, cleave, weave, and then bring forth much fruit to His name. The turtle dove is singing now. The winter's past on gone. Rise up, my fair one. Come away. I'll take you home to stay. The bride of Christ we have today, a blessing from the Lord. He gave her to His Son to say, to take her home above. See, if we're the bride of Christ, we have a bridegroom. And He's up in heaven with the Father. What does it say in Genesis about marriage? It says, first of all, the bridegroom has to leave the Father to come over to where the wife is. So Jesus Christ, someday in the future, my sisters, is going to leave His Father in heaven. And He's going to come down here to come get His bride. And He says, we're going to cleave to one another. We're going to be as one. And there, my friends, in heaven, that home He's prepared for us. My Father has many mansions. I must go away to prepare a place for you. He's going to take us back to the home He's built for us. And we're going to live forever and ever in a place of peace and eternity. The turtle dove is singing now. The winter is past and gone. Rise up, my fair one, and come away. I'll take you home to stay.